0: Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis.
1: And I'm Tim Kowal. Both Jeff and I are certified appellate specialists and uncertified podcast co-hosts. We try to bring our audience of trial and appellate attorneys some news and insights they can use in their practice. If you find this podcast helpful, please recommend it to a colleague. If not, there's always opposing counsel.
0: <laughs> and a quick thank you to our sponsor, CaseText. CaseText Case, Text. case Text is a legal research tool that harnesses AI and a lightning fast interface to help lawyers find case authority fast. I've been a Case Text subscriber since 2019, and I highly endorse their service. Listeners of our podcast will receive a 25% lifetime discount available to them if they sign up at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash
1: C-A-L-P. All right, Jeff, it's time for cases and tidbits episode. You know, we do so many episodes with guests with interesting perspectives, but all the time there are new cases coming down the pike. We like to cover those that have interesting, talk about interesting procedural quirks that trial attorneys and appellate attorneys need to know about, need a bookmark for their file. Okay, so the first up, I want to talk about Bader versus Johnson & Johnson. This is one of those mesothelioma cases. This involves an issue of expert, you know, dealing with expert witnesses, expert opinions. Everyone knows about the Sargon opinion now, that you can exclude expert opinions if they're speculative, citing the Supreme Court Sargon opinion. But that's not the only objection to be thinking about when you have opinions who have out-there theories. So if you're preparing for an expert witness at trial, you'll want to know about Sargon, as we talked about. Sanchez, you can't use case-specific hearsay through an expert and so these are kind of the go-to objections but don't forget about the 1970 was a 1976 opinion in kelly so here's, here's what happened in this uh, Bader versus Johnson & Johnson case. It was a talcum powder manufacturer where the defendants, they raised Sargon to the pla- one of the plaintiff's expert witnesses. The plaintiff wound up recovering a $12 million verdict based in part on this expert's novel opinion that fibrous talc causes cancer. The defendants had argued that the broader consensus of experts did not agree with the plaintiff's expert. This was, this was too novel a theory, was outside of the of the consensus of science. So the defendants objected on the basis of Sargon, Sargon Enterprises versus University of Southern California. That's the 2012 Supreme Court, California Supreme Court opinion. But that was the wrong objection the Court of Appeal held. The court noted that Sargon does not speak to whether a theory has achieved a consensus in the field sufficient to render it generally accepted. So if the defendants had wanted to object that the expert's opinion was a novel theory and not generally accepted in the scientific community, their motion to exclude did not challenge his testimony based on Kelly and its progeny. So that that was people versus Kelly. We'll put that case in the show notes. So the upshot is, if you've got objections to an out-there theory by an expert witness, don't stop at Sargon. Sargon's not a substitute for objections to novel and not generally accepted scientific theories. So make sure People versus Kelly is in your expert witness toolkit. And don't forget about Sanchez. And Sargon and Sanchez. That's right. Got to get them all in there. All right. Next case up I wanted to talk about Cole versus Superior Court. This deals with the question. I have this under the header: a timely motions for summary judgment is entitled to a timely hearing. That was the holding out of the fourth district division one in Cole versus Superior Court. So what happened here? This is a familiar story for all trial attorneys. You file your motion, you're ready to go. You want to get that heard in the hearing data set months and months in advance. And in in advance. this case, it was a summary judgment motion. Those are always going to be set months and months in advance. The problem was it was set months and months so far in advance out there on the calendar. It was even behind the trial date. So that's a problem. No point in doing a summary judgment hearing if you can't get it heard before the trials. So the moving party filed an ex-party application to have the MSJ hearing advanced to before the trial date. And the trial court said, no, you waited too long. You had long enough to file your MSJ. I've got calendaring problems, so can't help you. The moving party took this up on a writ petition to the Court of Appeal, and the court granted a peremptory writ and said— What a a gutsy
0: writ, huh, Tim? Isn't that a gutsy move filing a writ on this?
1: It is, because you're probably going to lose. And then even if you win, as the petitioner did here, you've got to go back to a trial judge who's probably not—you're probably not that trial judge's favorite person (laughs) anymore. But the Court of Appeal published its opinion, granting the peremptory writ. Court held that the trial court's calendaring issues are not a basis on which the trial court can refuse to hear a timely filed summary judgment motion. The court published the decision, quote, to provide guidance on the deadline for filing a summary judgment motion that is served electronically. There was an interesting issue about it was served you know, almost exactly 107 days. So it's uh, you know 75 days notice plus 30 days before the trial date. So that's 105 days and it was served 107 days. It was uh, served electronically. So you got the it had to be served two court days ahead of that. And it was served right on the dot, <laughs> not, yeah. not a day too soon.
0: So you entitled or summarized this case as a timely MSJ is entitled to a timely hearing. I wouldn't summarize it as a last minute MSJ is a backdoor way to get a trial continued because with this published decision, it seems like trial courts are going to opt to simply kick out a trial date.
1: Yeah, that's a very strategic way of looking at it. But yeah, that's true. And that was the alternative relief that the moving party sought here. Either advance my hearing date on the MSJ or kick out the trial date. And that was exactly why the opposing party opposed it. But there are other cases. This case reminded me that that local rules and local-local rules cannot override the Code of Civil Procedure and the rules of court concerning calendaring of motions. So there have been other cases where trial courts decide side have decided, you know, it would be to everyone's best interest if they met and conferred before they filed a motion for summary judgment. Uh-uh. Can't do it. The court of Appeal says, yeah. look, we sympathize. That makes sense to us, but that's a legislative determination, which is interesting. I'm doing some research on this in this other presentation, Jeff. And uh, California is of the minority of states in which the legislature decides court procedure. The majority of other state court, and, we, and California follows the federal model in that regard, where Congress decides court procedure. But most other state courts, their internal rules are governed by the judiciary branch itself. That was interesting. Yeah. Maybe, I'll, maybe we'll talk about that more in the future. All right. And the last case that I wanted to talk about before we get to your three zingers, Jeff, I filed this under the heading vexatious litigant determination is appealable. And we had covered a case a few months ago where the opposite was true. But here's what happened in the published opinion in Blizzard Energy versus Schaefer's. And, you know, I I like to think that that our listeners are probably not a lot of vexatious litigants, but I always find these (laughs) issues interesting about, you know, how the court decides what is appealable and what's not. So what happened is that a frivolous cross complaint, the holding is that a frivolous cross complaint counts toward the five frivolous lawsuits that an impro litigant may file before being deemed a vexatious litigant. So the Trial court had refused to declare Schaefer as a vexatious litigant because one of his lawsuits was a cross complaint, and the trial court thought, "Well, does that does a cross complaint count as a lawsuit? I don't think so. so no, it's not one of you, you haven't filed five frivolous lawsuits, so you're not a vexatious litigant." And Blizzard Energy challenged that. And the Court of Appeal agreed that, yeah, frivolous cross-complaint counts as one of your five. But how did Blizzard convince the court to grant review of that order? Because the court wound up parting ways with the first district opinion from earlier, back in 2022, where the second district here held that an order declaring a person to be a vexatious litigant is the equivalent of an injunction. And Remember, under Code of Civil Procedure 904.1, the appealability statute, orders granting or denying injunctions are appealable orders. Orders. So that was the angle that Blizzard Energy pursued here that, well, a vexatious litigant determination is not among the appealable orders, but it's kind of like an injunction order where it's, it's telling when you declare a litigant a vex, vexatious litigant, you're saying you can no longer, you may not file any more lawsuits. That's like an injunction. And this here was, was an order denying an injunction. So it's appealable. Yeah. yeah. And yet, for purposes of deciding the
0: appropriate standard of review, you know, typically injunctions are reviewed with deference, either abuse of discretion or substantial evidence for factual findings. And here, the standard of review was de novo. They said it was legal questions. It's just odd. It seems like the court really wanted to review this order to construe it as an injunction for purposes of appealability and jurisdiction, and but not an injunction or not the traditional standard of review for injunctions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in the case we had talked about last year, the same argument was raised. And that was an order finding that, that the litigant was vexatious. Mm-hmm. And so a, the vexatious litigant appealed that and said, hey, I'm not vexatious. I want review of this order. And it's like an injunction. So Court of Appeal, you should review my direct appeal as an order reviewing an injunction. And the court said, yeah. nah. It's not an injunction. It's not <laughs> reviewable at all. So you're hosed. And I, if you remember, Jeff, I, I disagreed with that ruling last time around. I thought that, that it should have been re- reviewable as an injunction. At least the appellant had cited, you know, a presidential authority or published authority on that point that held that a vexatious litigant determination is like an injunction for purposes of appealability. But now looking at it again, I, I'm not so sure. Orders orders that restrict or require actions in the real world, injunctions uh, telling someone to To unlock the doors to a business partner or uh, hand the passwords over, give access to the bank account, that sort of thing. Those are different from orders that restrict or require actions in court world. Orders requiring a corporation to pay dividends, that's an injunction, and so it's appealable. Orders requiring a corporation to produce documents in response to discovery, a discovery order, is that an injunction, Jeff? Not a chance, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, what else is the difference? The only difference I can detect is that one affects the part of the litigants' actions in the real world and the other affects their actions in court world. And usually, orders governing conduct in the court are not considered to be injunctions. And so, I tend to think that, that maybe that first, uh, maybe that the, the decision that we reviewed last year was correct that uh, vexatious litigant determinations, whatever, whatever else you may, may think about their uh, reviewability, they're not injunctions.
0: Got it. Well, it's good to know your uh, mind can be changed. And uh, next you'll be deciding that slap fee awards are uh, not automatically or are automatically stayed on the wall.
1: <laughs> That's right. And by the way, the, that uh, that opinion that we covered was uh, the Luckett decision. And that was on episode 42. We'll put uh, links to those in the show notes.
0: All right. So now I've got three cases that caught my eye uh, this week that I wanted to discuss really quick. And those three cases won't be any surprise to our audience. One is a slap. One involves the First Amendment. And one involves Zoom proceedings for a trial. So let's start first with a slap issue, a super interesting one called White v. Davis. Now, I am seeing in my practice an increased number of anti-slap motions filed in response to restraining order proceedings. These are not civil lawsuits, but special proceedings like a civil harassment restraining order, domestic violence restraining order, elder abuse restraining order. And in these cases I've been involved in, the trial court's not careful. An anti-slap motion can be used strategically. By the respondent as a strategic motion against credible claims or a smack. Consider that if the trial court hears the anti-slap motion or the restraining order is heard, the loser of the slap motion can immediately appeal and stay the restraining order proceedings from ever commencing. And that can defeat the purpose of these special proceedings to get an expedited restraining order without all the trappings and slowdown of a traditional lawsuit. So, what do you do about these heating policy issues of wanting Meritorious anti-slap motions heard quickly, and you want meritorious restraining orders heard quickly. This was the issue in White B. Davis. This is a January 5th case. And the fourth district held that the trial court abused its discretion by not using its inherent case management tools to hear the anti-slap motions concurrent with the restraining order or granting a restraining order first, having it in place and hearing the anti-slap motion second. So if you are an attorney representing a party seeking a restraining order in one of these special types of proceedings, and the other side attempts to file a non-meritorious slap motion, like a smack, uh, to obtain a delay in the issuance of the injunction, just take a look at White. It's an interesting procedural case, and it pumps up the power of the trial court to manage its own docket.
1: Yeah. are the Is the stay imposed by the anti-slap motion, that can be set aside in the discretion of the court?
0: So, you know, it's interesting the stay only really relates to discovery in terms of the filing of the motion. And then discovery remains stayed in terms of if there's a filing of an appeal. And the real question is: does the trial order have the power, does the trial court have the power to do anything once the anti-slap motion has been heard and denied? I don't know if there's any cases on point there, but the the solution really is to hear the anti-slap motion with any restraining order. That's, that's the elegant solution.
1: Yeah. So make sure you get these other, make sure you get the restraining order teed up and on the court's docket before the anti-slap motion is heard.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: No, um, yeah, that, that is interesting. And I, and I did see the white case come up on my feed as well. I thought that's a very interesting issue. I'm glad you brought that to our attention.
0: Thank you for letting me talk about a slap case. You know how I love the slap
1: cases. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. So next one I want to talk about is in your neighborhood, Lathus versus City of Huntington Beach from the Ninth Circuit from January 5th. And this concerns the removal of a volunteer on an advisory, a city advisory board for political reasons. I read the headline on this case. I immediately thought that that can't be right. But eventually I came around and I think I agree with what the Ninth Circuit did here. So in this case, we're going to be talking about a city council member who's the appointeur and the volunteer who gets appointed to a city commission an advisory body. That's the appointee. And here, the volunteer appointee was photographed at a political rally standing next to someone from Antifa. And the appointer, the city council member, asked the appointee, the volunteer, to give a statement denouncing Antifa. And the appointee did so, but the statement was not strong enough or not to the liking of the appointer, council member. And the council member dismissed the appointee from her position on the board. The appointee then filed a lawsuit arguing two things that she was removed. In retaliation for First Amendment protected activity, and also that somehow the First Amendment was violated through compelled speech when the city council members asked her to give a, a statement denouncing Antifa. So the appointee lost at the district level, and that result was affirmed in the Ninth Circuit. And it was interesting. The, the thing I found interesting about this is that your city and my city differs in terms of how they appoint people to advisory boards in my city, Planning Commission and other advisory boards. The city council votes at large, or all five members of our city council vote, and that's how the people are appointed. But in your city, one council member appoints one member to advisory body, and that member is a face or spokesman or political voice of that city council member. It's, it's an, an extension. extension
1: of that person. Yeah. yeah. So and does that, was, that change the First Amendment analysis, do you think, if the appointee is appointed by the council at large?
0: Yeah. So let me let me quote the Ninth Circuit. We agree with the district court that the critical issue is whether Lopez was effectively a political extension of the council member and concluding that under this particular statutory scheme, the appointee was effectively the city council members,
1: quote, public face. Mm-hmm. We affirm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that came across. Yeah, I wasn't planning to talk about that, but it it came across my desk as well because it's out of my city. Yeah, that's interesting. I was trying to imagine, you know, this particular city council person is is not my political persuasion. But so I was trying to imagine, and I tended to agree with the outcome. I tend toward the more free speech absolutist, but I thought I followed the, the the Ninth Circuit's rationale here, and it seemed right to me. I was trying to. It's always important in these kind of things. Imagine if imagine it on the other foot. Would I agree? Yeah. I don't know. So, what do you think, Jeff? Do you uh, agree with this outcome? I
0: think your city needs to change its policies for appointing people. <laughs> that's the first thing. But
1: yeah, I, I tend to agree
0: with the Ninth Circuit in this circumstance for this particular way of choosing people to serve on committees. It's more of a political extension, and, and that is the deciding factor. But in my city, if someone is put on a planning commission, let's say, by a vote out of three out of five council members, that person should not be able to be removed based on First Amendment activity. Hmm. just, yeah, that's my view. Yeah,
1: so go ahead bad, and- uh yeah.
0: Go ahead and start reforming your city charter, okay?
1: <laughs> well, and just uh, just a commentary on that. Again, I haven't looked into this, so this is just based on recollection. But it was only a year ago, a year or so ago, that we had one of the the appointees to a board. It's a fairly innocuous board. It's the Huntington Beach Fourth of July Planning Commission. I should be careful here, and I'll at least give a disclaimer. My wife is the chair of the Fourth of July Planning Commission. One of the other members of that commission was removed a year ago, you know, for maybe uh, for comments made on social media. And and I thought, well, that's that's interesting. Now, considering this case, if that person yeah. is an extension of the city council person, right. city council person can't be removed. So can that council member's appointees be removed just by a majority vote of the board?
0: Yeah. interesting. And by the way, your city charter statutory scheme says people could be removed from a commission with or without cause. I think that was another important factor in the Ninth Circuit. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And of course, if the, if the bylaws or the charter allow for uh, ordinances, allow for uh, procedures for removal, then I'm sure uh, I assume those were followed. All right. Let me talk
0: about the last case as we wrap up here. The third case I want to talk about is U.S. versus Knight. It's a Ninth Circuit decision. And this case caught my eye because it involves Zoom proceedings during COVID. But also, I'm always interested in the distinction between, in the federal world, structural error, where an error results in automatic reversal, or non-structural error, where you have to show prejudice. Similar to the state court decision. And so this was a criminal case where one juror watched the first two days of a criminal trial on Zoom, was not present in the courtroom. And the criminal defendant stipulated at trial to the remote proceedings. And the defendant was convicted and appealed. And the Ninth Circuit sidestepped the question of whether it was appropriate or not to have a remote proceeding because the defendant stipulated it's okay for this juror to be on, on Zoom. So the question of the case was, assuming it was error to allow a juror to participate remotely, is that error structural or not? And the Ninth Circuit looked at it and said, I thought in kind of a thinned down, weak analysis, the Ninth Circuit said, this is not the kind of error that results in, commonly results in prejudice. And, and so they decided that in the absence of a specific showing in a specific showing of prejudice, this is the kind of error that is waivable. So when a defendant, criminal defendant waives the right to have all the jurors present in the courtroom for proceedings, they can't then in an appeal argue. They didn't, it was so, such an important constitutional right. They didn't have the ability to waive it.
1: Yeah. Remind me, Jeff, I remember skimming this very quickly. I recall that the court had listed some other, other types of structural issues that were not waivable. Do you recall examples of the kinds that are not waivable?
0: Exactly. You know, um, The right to an attorney, I think was one of them. I think the right to confront witnesses was another. I mean, they're the big ones that we learned about in law school.
1: Yeah. So this was, this was not a waivable one. I don't know what the standard is for deciding what, what is a waivable, yeah. you know, a structural issue and what's not.
0: Yeah. I think this one was based on the record before it. There wasn't a whole lot of evidence that how this jurors experience in jury proceedings was different than the in-person jurors. And on that basis, the court didn't have a lot of ammunition to work with in terms of concluding that this is the kind of error that should be structural.
1: Yeah. If it is structural, you know, those are. that's a determination that it defies review for harmlessness. And so it's basically just up to the judge's imagination. Is this the sort of thing? To, and if, if a jury had been excused for the entire trial, not excused, but allowed to observe the trial remotely for the entirety of the trial rather than I think it was just two days here, yeah, would that be a structural? Or what if the entire jury was permitted right. to observe remotely rather than in person? That seems yeah. like it would be structural.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think the fact that the defendant stipulated here and the fact that it was only two days, not the entire trial, means maybe this won't be the final word on the subject of whether these are structural or not, but the record here wasn't sufficient for the Ninth Circuit to make any new rules on this.
1: Yeah, not, not the best case to launch off a new finding of a structural error. Okay. No, yeah. Great. Uh, those are three great cases, Jeff. Now, do we have a couple of tidbits you want to share with the audience?
0: I have one. I was actually interviewed earlier this week. It involves about this case back east. There's a big law firm, the ProScour Law Firm. Imagine, Tim, He used to be a computer guy in a prior life. Yeah. Imagine you're the head of IT at a big law firm and the COO, number two guy at the law firm, comes to you and says, hey, I've got this thumb drive. I want to put stuff on this thumb drive. IT guy, would you please disable the security parameters that usually prevent removable storage devices from being used in this way. And the IT guy says, why? And this law firm officer, the number two man says, ah, an outside vendor needs it. So the IT does it. The IT guy does it, removes the security. The COO of the law firm downloads all of the firm's data regarding partner compensation, practice groups, and productivity of clients and practice areas. Not client data, but productivity of the firm. And turns out the COO then uh, decided to delete a thousand emails involving him in violation of a litigation hold that had been placed on the computer and gave notice that he was quitting. And he fired off an email to somebody saying, boy, my employer's not going to be happy when they learn who I'm going to work for. <laughs> so under those facts, the law firm back east filed a lawsuit, got a restraining order, temporary restraining order, preventing him from using that thumb drive or sharing these files in order to show cause, explain himself to the court as to what he did and why he did it. And I think today or yesterday, he filed his response saying, oh, you know, I am getting ready to go on vacation. And you know, everybody likes to work on vacation. So I downloaded those files so I could work over my vacation. I don't think the judge has ruled yet on the preliminary injunction. It's just ruled on the restraining order, but that's where it is. And I, I bring this case up because it's an interesting security issue for big firms and little firms in terms of how they secure their data and how it's usually good to have a check so that not just one person can access key sensitive data like that. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That's that's a scary story. The COO said that I was just taking the thumb drive to work remotely, but did he explain also why he de- uh, simultaneously deleted thousands of those emails? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, when you go not- on vacation, you always you know delete a thousand emails before you go. When there's a litigation
0: hold because of pending litigation about those emails, yeah, I, I don't know that he's explained that one.
1: Yeah, no, that is a good cautionary tale for for having good internal procedures. And yeah, like you said, having like a two step check, you know, advising your IT people, you know, don't just take it on the authority of one person to uh, to override important security con- parameters.
0: Yeah. That's the only tidbit I had this week. you have
1: anything? No, no, I think we can uh, can wrap it up for this week. So let's thank our sponsor once again, Case Text, for sponsoring the podcast. Each week when we include links to all the great cases we talk about, we use Case Text for our case database. And listeners of the podcast can find a 25% discount available to them if they sign up to Case Text at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash c-a-l-p.
0: And if you have suggestions for future episodes or an explanation of why someone would delete a thousand emails, please email us at info at calpodcast.com. And in our upcoming episodes, look for tips on how to lay the groundwork appeal when preparing for trial.
1: All right. See you next time.
0: You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode,
1: our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's
0: calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again.